Hi, my name is Jameson. Welcome to the Unexpected Experts Podcast, a show where we dive into the vast spectrum of human knowledge and the ways that our experiences make us experts in unexpected ways. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, everyone. I wanted to jump in here before the episode starts and give a bit of an intro about the conversation you're about to hear. I had a great chat with my pastor, Jeremy Duncan, who's the lead pastor at Commons Church here in Calgary. And we had a really great time talking about family, church, and adapting and growing a faith community in a pandemic. But we also discussed some pretty hot topics, and we realized that these issues may be polarizing for some people. We talk about LGBTQ people and the way that the church has viewed and dealt with this community over some of its history. I know that a lot of people feel very, very strongly about this issue, and I want to acknowledge and respect whatever position you hold about this and related issues. In this episode, Jeremy and I both discuss where we stand, and if you disagree, that is totally fine. My goal in sharing this conversation is not to cause further divides surrounding an already difficult subject, but to have a more reasonable dialogue about how this issue has presented itself in my life, in Jeremy's life, and the lives of people we know and love. The conversation also pivots into a discussion about some of the disheartening abuse that has happened in the church and other ministries, specifically surrounding Ravi Zacharias. At the time this episode was recorded, it was a recent issue that was still the focus of a lot of discussions in the broader Christian community. This is a difficult situation to understand, and I know it's hard to talk about. So if you need to skip this episode and join us for the next conversation, please feel free to do that. I would simply ask that you listen with the same respect and care that we took in discussing it. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast. This week, I've got my my friend and pastor, uh, Jeremy Duncan, on the show. Jeremy has uh, has been a Calgarian now for fifteen years. He's lived in Calgary, and uh, where did you? Where were you before Calgary, Jeremy? Originally Toronto. I, Originally uh, was born Toronto, in Peterborough, Ontario, but lived in Toronto for a while before moving to Calgary. Awesome. Um, and then you've been the pastor at Commons Church here in Calgary for the past six years or so. Jeremy's also got a wife, and her name is Rachel, and he's got two kids, um, Eaton and Emerson, who are both um, adopted, which I would definitely love to talk about later. And uh, and he's got a dog named Cedar. So um, other than that, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome to Unexpected Experts. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me here. It should be kind of fun. Yeah, it should be fun this morning. You got your cup of coffee there, I see. Exactly. Yeah, I made myself yeah. an espresso this morning. So, <laughs> very nice, very nice. Maybe let's start off with what made you decide to become a pastor? Uh, were you raised in the church or not? Did you have a conversion experience at mm-hmm. a certain age, or what's the whole story about um, maybe your faith upbringing and all of that steps leading you to become a pastor? So, the, I mean, like everybody, right? It's a long story, but uh, I'll give you the the condensed version. Um. I've got one of those sort of family of origin stories that's uh, probably like a lot of people where we were in and out of church. We were around the church. I think a lot of people in Canada have that kind of a background, but not particularly uh, immersed in church culture or not particularly religious as a family growing up. 
So I remember going to church at Christmas Eve. I remember going to church at Easter. I remember seasons in our family where we would go more regularly. And then for the most part, um, not a huge thing. But then in high school, I became uh, friends uh, with, a, with a guy in my class. And we were friends for a couple of years. And then one day he invited me to his church. And that kind of stuck. I got involved, um, made some friends there. And, uh, and it became an important part of my life. Didn't have a really big conversion experience, but just sort of slowly realized that this was my social group now and, and this was sort of working for me. And then after high school, I took a year off, wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but then uh, during that, I was, I was volunteering at church, I was doing some things and my pastor said, hey, why don't you, why don't you do all this professionally? And I thought, oh, that sounds like kind of fun. So I went to uh, a Bible college for my undergrad. Um, did a theology degree, got hired right out of there by a church in Toronto. And I worked there for a couple of years and it was good. I don't have any bad experiences. I don't have anything negative to say about it. Uh, but my whole experience had been quite quick and somewhat limited. So not really growing up in church, not having a ton of church background, immediately going to Bible college, immediately getting hired in a church. And then when I started to think about you know, what I was doing for a living and deconstruct a bit of my faith and read a bit more broadly. I started thinking maybe this pastor gig wasn't for me. So I actually quit. I got out of that. I did some other things in Toronto for a while. I worked in graphic design and I did, um, I worked in, uh, I built some databases and websites and that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden this church in Calgary, a few years later, called and offered me a job. And part of their pitch was you know, an opportunity to sort of rethink things a little bit, um, think about Christianity and pastoring in a bit of a different way. And I thought, well, I've got this degree, you know, I've got nothing really tying me to Ontario. My wife was game for it. So we picked up and we moved to Calgary and I worked at that church for 10 years. And then again, I sort of realized I wanted to try some different things. So I, I quit that job and I started Commons Church six years ago. So a bit of a long and winding path in and out of ministry a few times, but uh, it seems to have stuck this time um, and it's, it's been pretty good. So I've been here seven, almost seven years now since we started Commons Church. Wow. Time flies, eh? Yeah, no kidding. I love that you just casually say like, yeah, I just decided to quit my job and start something new. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, it does, it kind of feels that way sometimes. Most of my life, I think some of it's a personality thing, but I have not been particularly risk averse in my life. Um, we Fair sort enough. of packed up and moved across the country just to try something out. And then after 10 years, uh, we, I quit my job and we tried something new that way. So I think that's been kind of the fun thing. My wife is not as um, adventurous as I am, but she's always been willing to go along with me on these, these things. So it's been kind of nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Just a, a go with the flow type of person, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would love to hear um, maybe what pastoring has looked like in this last year with everything going on with COVID and with everything being online and on YouTube and, and mm -hmm. with the church podcast and everything. Um, maybe what has had to shift in the structure of the church and um, what have been maybe some of the biggest challenges you've had to face just in this last year? Yeah. I mean, literally everything that's, that's been the weirdest part. <laughs> well, everything has had to change in how we've, how we've done things. So, I mean, Commons is a, a pretty young church, uh, not just in that we're only six years old, but also, you know, the community that's there. So we were quite, um, you know, 
well-versed in, you know, using the internet and having a podcast and a YouTube channel and all those types of things. So I think in terms of churches, uh, we were well positioned to adapt to the pandemic and Mm -hmm. to move online. And yet at the same time, still learning how to live stream effectively and do a service, um, had a learning curve to it. I think bigger though, was the learning curve of figuring out how to keep a community connected to each other and moving forward together when you can't actually be in the room together. Totally. And that's been, totally. that's been the harder piece. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to like throw a sermon up on YouTube. I mean, that's, it's not that big a deal and you get better at lighting and you get better at video and blah, blah, blah. But the bigger thing is how do you sort of keep a community on mission together and feeling like they're still part of something when they're not seeing each other. So that's meant, you know, using zoom a lot more for one-on-one conversations, conversations like this, um, you know, things have had to change from, ironically, as we've moved online, things have had to move from that sort of broadcast model where you talk to 800 people on a Sunday to smaller interactions with five people in Zoom at a time. It's been this sort of weird dynamic where as we've gone online, it's actually become smaller and, and more narrow cast. Um, but I think, you know, the other tough thing personally has been you just don't get to see people. So this isn't always a good thing, but as a pastor, you tend to get a lot of, you know, good, healthy feedback. I mean, I get lots of negative comments as well and mean tweets, but as a pastor, a lot of people will tell you, hey, you did a really good job and, you know, they'll listen to a sermon and they'll feedback and you can kind of respond to that and adapt to it. For a year now, I've just been talking to a camera and not hearing a lot from people. So that's been sort of difficult to sort of not only just feed my ego and feel good about myself, but at the same time, have a sense of how effective I'm being in community. And I think, I think a big part of being a pastor is watching people and seeing people and reacting to them in real time. And the pandemic has made that hard as well. So lots of things have shifted certainly over the last year, but we're, we're doing our best with it. And to be honest, I'm, I'm very grateful for the way that our community has responded and the way that they've stuck with us and the way that they have done their best to sort of keep engaged with an ongoing conversation. Yeah, definitely. I think that just speaks to like the strength of the community at Commons too, and um, the realization that we are all in this thing together, and we are all trying to figure out figure it out one day at a time. And uh, you know, the willingness of people to jump on stuff like Zoom and watch the videos every Sunday. I think that's that definitely just speaks to the really strong community that is at Commons. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it ebbs and flows, right? There's there's weeks where you feel like, hey, I'm I'm ready to work and I'm ready to do my best, and then there's days you just want to give up. And I think you're right. You know, when you are part of something and you feel connected and deeply to a community, I think you you are more willing to at least try through these seasons. And I think we all have a sense that hopefully this is now going to be coming towards an end. A vaccine is starting to roll out. So hopefully within the next, you know, six months, we can get back to something that feels a little more normal in our lives. So that's brought a little yeah. hope into my life anyway. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's it's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about um, maybe your unique family and going through the whole adoption process, sure. um, maybe what that has looked like. I've got three cousins that are adopted. So, oh, cool. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite the journey, you know, um, having that expectation and, and just wanting to meet this new person. And um, I, I would love to hear maybe what does, what made you and Rachel decide that adoption was the route for you in building your family and then maybe the process and 
some of the struggles even along the way, whatever you'd be willing to share. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've talked about our story lots of times with people. Um, Rachel and I, uh, so we've been married almost 20 years now. Um, but we were, we were married young and we didn't really intend to have kids young. So we had, like I said, we had lived in Ontario for a while and then we moved to Calgary. And then it wasn't until our thirties, early thirties that we even started sort of considering or talking about having kids. And it was at that point, you know, in our mid thirties, about 10 years into our marriage that we started to realize, okay, well, we've been talking about this for a while now. It hasn't really happened. And so then, you know, we went to the fertility clinic or whatever and found out that we couldn't have kids. So it was after a decade into our marriage where we realized that, you know, part of the reason we didn't have kids isn't just because we were being quite careful. It was because it just wasn't in the cards for us. And so then at that point, it became just, uh, you know, sort of a plan B. And, you know, I certainly don't want to discount anybody's experience uh, because everybody's going to experience it different ways. And I think even my wife and I experienced it in different ways. But for the most part, we were fairly easily able to transition from, you know, plan A, which was wait and then have kids to plan B, which was, you know, to move forward with, with adoption. And we looked at all our options at that point, whether that was in vitro fertilization or adoption or foster care, all these different things. And we ended up settling on working with an agency here in Alberta. In Canada, adoption is the purview of the provinces. So that means it's a little bit different from province to province. But in Alberta, adoptions are, for the most part, they are private and they're open which means they're run by private agencies, not the government. And they're open, meaning um, the information is exchanged between birth families and adoptive families. Those, those records aren't sealed. So the way it works is you, you, know, you go through, you do a class and you go through all the checks and you know, then you put together a profile, which is sort of a letter and a bunch of photos of your family. And then when a prospective uh, birth mother or father and family, sometimes they're all involved, um, want to do an adoption, they go to the agency, they look through all the profiles, they find a family that they feel comfortable with, and then the agency contacts you and you set up a meeting and, and you go through all that. So um, that, that's basically how it works. So we adopted our son seven years ago. Um, you know, um, his uh, birth mom was here in the province. She ended up moving out to the Maritimes and is now back in Alberta. And then this past year, we adopted our daughter, and uh, her birth mother lives here in the city. Uh, that's that's been an interesting thing with COVID. We haven't got to see her as much as we'd like, but we stay in contact with her on FaceTime, and she's very much part of our family as well. And, and we really want that sort of connection. That's very um, and cool. both of our kids are are not you know white and Caucasian, so we want them to be connected to their heritage and their story and, and their um, you know uh, families and cultures as much as possible. Our son is. Uh, Vietnamese, Caucasian, and our daughter is Indigenous, and, and it's very important for us to make sure that they grow up with those kind of um, roots and connections as well. So, yeah, it's 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 been an interesting story so far. Both our kids are young, though, so we'll I'm sure we've got lots to learn as we go forward as well. But it's it's been yeah, a good definitely. story. That's really interesting. It reminds me of it, I'm I'm just remembering the whole journey of uh, of my aunt and uncle mm -hmm. adopting uh, three kids from Haiti. Cool. And, um, yeah, my, my three cousins, so I've got, um, uh, the two oldest ones are both brothers, technically, 
uh, or by birth, not technically. Um, and then, and then the youngest, um, she is, she's from another family, but, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's very it's cool. Such... And it's very beautiful. I mean, and part of, part of what's interesting is, um, one of the privileges that I have being a pastor is I get sort of this window into all of these different stories and families. And mm, one of the things totally. you start to realize is that every family has some unique story of, beauty and pain and tragedy and comedy and all of these things that have gone into making their families. Um, adoption seems sort of outside of the norm for people, but when you have the privilege of looking into everyone's story, you realize every story is, is complex and beautiful in its own way. And, and in some ways Absolutely. you actually don't feel all that special having a, a family that's been brought together through adoption. You just realize it's, it's just one of many stories that are out there. It's, it's part of the, the tapestry of humanity, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, it really is true. I mean, we kind of say those things, but when you get the opportunity to sort of see into a lot of different stories, you realize it's all true. I'm, I'm curious too, like what is something maybe that you've learned about um, maybe other forms of spirituality in regards to your kids and mm. maybe their backgrounds and, you know, something from maybe specifically indigenous spirituality that you've seen that has really resonated with you and your experience being a Christ follower and being a Christian? Mm -hmm. So right now, my daughter is, she just turned one. So we haven't learned a lot from her yet. <laughs> Fair um, <enough>. Or even, <laughs> even from her, her band. Um, she is, she's Cree. Uh, she's from the Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. And, you know, we, we really hope, especially once uh, COVID's over to, to build those connections and those relationships and, you know, again, we're, we're really investing in that relationship with her birth mother, who's very much part of our family, and we, we really love her as well. Um, but even pre-Emerson coming into our lives, I have been um, fascinated by and had the privilege to learn from uh, some, um, some um, leaders in, in the Indigenous community in, in my graduate work. I had the privilege of studying under um, an Indigenous professor who taught theology to me. Um, there's been a number of Indigenous writers that we have featured and uh, celebrated at Commons Church. And so That's right, there's yeah. a lot of pieces from Indigenous spirituality that I think um, are both compatible with Christianity, but also highlight and you know, bring out a lot of the nuance of that. You know, in particular, you know, I think Christianity should have this deep appreciation for the created world and for the environment that surrounds us and how we care for this creation that the creator has entrusted to us. And fortunately, Christianity has sometimes um, lost sight of that peace and native spirituality, I think, really brings that back, our interconnectedness with all things. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of just, we just had Ash Wednesday yesterday. One of the readings for Ash Wednesday from the common book of prayer is this idea, almighty God, you hate nothing which you have created, that everything that is created in the universe is, is good and sacred. And as we recognize, you know, the image of the divine in all things, not just human beings, but in trees and plants and water, as we work to protect all of those things, we honor the spirituality that, that sits at the center of Christianity. But we often learn that from um, our native neighbors who are around us teaching us about all of these traditions that have grounded their faith for, for centuries. And so I think, I think we become better Christians the more we listen and learn to these voices around us, including native spirituality. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I think there's such a, such a loss spiritually when people just intellectualize their beliefs and mm. 
and don't look outside literally and you know soak in the scenery or um learn about the history of the land that we live on and the people that have lived there before us i think yeah i mean even just just knowing a, that we're on treaty territory right now i mean yeah, all of absolutely. us you know whether we are indigenous or not we are treaty people because we live we, we own our houses we live in this land because a treaty was signed between our people and those people and, and we need to learn what that means so that we can honor it properly so. absolutely like my whole family all my grandparents are from the netherlands and so they immigrated to canada after world war ii and then both my parents were born here in calgary and then subsequently obviously me and my brothers were all born here in calgary too but it's it's that background knowledge that this land that we're living on that i was born on that i very much identify with is not my land it's not even the land of my parents and my grandparents it's very much someone else's land with someone else's history and there's so much there that we don't um, often acknowledge or appreciate yeah it's a, it's a very interesting thing you know as I, I still haven't really made sense of this but to understand that i live on my daughter's land you know she right <laughs> this, is, this yeah. is her land more than it is mine and there's something i think uh, as i wrestle with that and i learn from that over the years i think there'll be a lot that is added to me um, through that knowledge and that awareness and those things so i'd like to pivot maybe into um I know Commons has been a church that is very LGBTQ affirming, and that's definitely something that I personally hold to be valuable. And um, I would love to maybe go into some of that and what being an affirming or more affirming church means and maybe, you know, how that must bring up a lot of questions from other people and other pastors and obviously um, the denomination. And so how have you really navigated this cultural and also spiritual minefield? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the the, the last question you were asking around spirituality and, and indigenous spirituality, I mean, I think the same types of um, narrative arcs apply here, that when we are willing to listen to each other and honor each other's stories, I think that should impact us and change the way that we think about the world and we think about ourselves and the ways that we think about God. If if the divine is present in every person that we encounter, then there's something that we can learn about God from every encounter, including our LGBTQ siblings that exist within our, our society, within our cultures, within our churches around us. And, you know, I mean, and this is the, this is the truth, is every church does have LGBTQ persons there. They may not be open about that. The church may not be willing to hear that. But the stories exist within every community. And so when we're willing uh, to listen, to maybe set aside some of our biases and say, well, what can this person, this human being formed in the divine image, teach me about God? I think then we do begin to question some of our biases, some of our assumptions and learn. So Commons sits in a sort of unique space because we are we're probably not affirming in, you know, within certain denominations, affirming means a particular way of approaching things. Um, for Commons, we've actually taken an approach to say, look, I'm not that concerned with what people think they believe. Mm. And I know that's a kind of a strange thing for a church to say, but particularly <laughs> on this issue and many more, I think there's often things that we think we believe, but really what betrays 
what's at the heart of who we are and how we move through the world is, is how we treat each other. And I think sometimes we are too quick to segregate ourselves into groups of people that profess the same beliefs. And therefore, we're not rubbing up against people who think differently or see the world differently. And I think that's a real detriment. I think actually we become our best selves. We learn the most about God when we're interacting with the most people. And so at Commons, we've actually said, uh, look, I don't, I don't really care what you think about same-sex relationships or same-sex marriage or LGBTQ persons, as long as you are willing to honor that person, listen their story, break bread with them, have them in your home, and treat them as you know, a real human being. Now, the reality is that also means that those people are going to be treated as fully uh, valued members of our, our community, which means we're not going to um, diminish their role. They are going to be allowed to be in leadership. We are going to participate in their weddings. They are going to be fully uh, valued and honored in our community. But the important thing to me is how we actually live with each other, how we treat each other, how we listen to each other, how we honor each other, rather than sometimes that, you know, you mentioned this intellectualizing, but these beliefs that we hold in our head, I actually think are secondary to the beliefs that we live out in conversation with each other. So that's been a value at Commons, that I want people who think they think differently to be listening to each other, learning from each other, influencing each other. And I think that when that happens, not only do we change our beliefs, but we become you know, more accepting, more generous people, which I think is really the goal of, of all spirituality, including Christianity, to shape us into the kind of graceful, peaceful people that follow the path of Jesus in the world. And so ironically, the more that we have affirmed um, the holiness and the sacredness of LGBTQ persons, the more we're able to follow the path of Jesus in the world. Um, that tries to bring grace to those around us, that tries to bring peace to the world. And I personally, in the same way that I am learning about Jesus from my daughter and from her heritage, I am learning about Jesus from those LGBTQ persons who have come into our community and shown profound grace to me, even as our church has wrestled with this and come to the place of saying, yes, we want to fully affirm you as a human being. So I, I think it's been a great gift to me. I think it's been a great gift to Commons, even as we continue to listen and learn and move forward. And I hope that even on the other side of that conversation, when the next conversation comes up and we have something new to learn, because there's always going to be something new to learn. Definitely. Hopefully yeah. all of these things will build together and put us in the posture of being willing and open to listen and learn. And I think that's, that's the real gift that, that has brought to me anyway. That's beautiful. That's definitely one thing that really drew me to comments was as as I've been wrestling through my own beliefs and my own faith in these last few years, that's um, that's one thing that I've realized that I grew up believing that it was wrong and that it was destructive. And now just realizing that these people are also part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. They are part of humanity just as much as I am, just as much as as you are just as much as anybody else is. And even though they maybe don't fit on the, on the binary that we would like, or that we're used to, you know, that, um, that they are as much a part of the human body as anyone. And mm -hmm. by virtue of that, they are as welcome into the body of Christ as anybody else. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just being intellectually honest about, 
you know, the complexity of the scriptures and the different cultures that these ancient texts were written in. Of course, yeah. And how we understand them, of course, and of course we honor them and we, and we believe that they are, you know, inspired. You know, this, this text that has come to us that reveals God to us through the unfolding narrative. But recognizing the complexity of all that, recognizing that human sexuality is a profoundly complex idea that's shaped by our biology, it's shaped by the cultures around us, it's shaped by all of these different factors. And it's not just as simple as do this or do that. I, I, I don't think that I could change my sexuality if I wanted to. Um, you know, there's nothing that I could do. Some of those things have been imprinted onto me at this point. And yet I believe, and, and some of those things are profoundly unhealthy in my sexuality. And I understand that. Sure. And yet I believe that the divine, that God is still present working with me. Um, healing me, helping me, helping me to be in relationship with with my wife and with people around me in newer and better ways all the time. I mean, and that's the beauty of what it means to be um, a person who's who's pursuing spiritual growth is to recognize that you are always moving forward. That there's always going to be a next thing that you can work on, and yet in the midst of that, you are profoundly loved even as you go through it. I mean, I think that's the real beauty. Of, of following the way of Jesus. There's always a step ahead of you. There's always something new to learn. There's always something new for you to change and work on in yourself. And yet you are profoundly loved every step along the way. No matter how far you journey through your life, you will never be more loved than you were the very first day. And when I actually, for me, when I actually begin to believe that, that I can't be any more loved by God than I am right now, I'm not then in a place where I say, well, I've got nothing more to do. It doesn't matter anymore. I actually find myself incredibly inspired to try to be the best version of myself, to grow, to move forward, to move closer to God. The more I know I'm loved, the more I want to be worthy of that love. And I think that's the, that's the you know, profoundly strange and, and ironic beauty of this idea of grace. That the more we know we're loved, the more we want to be worthy of that love. The more we think that we're unloved, the more we actually want to push away from that love. And I think if we could just communicate to people, you know, this, this God that continues to search us all out and track us all down and invite us back home, I think we actually would see a more graceful, more peaceful, more Christ-like um, society around us all the time. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole issue has become so polarizing and I've seen that with some of my own relationships and I've, I've seen the way that um, holding to certain views can damage relationships. And I don't think that's Christ-like mm -hmm. and I've seen the ways that um, some of these beliefs have harmed people that, that I would call friends and that, you know, I would love and support. And honestly, it, it hurts to see the church, claim to be loving and then to treat parts of humanity in a way that isn't loving mm -hmm. um i guess what would what would be your perspective on on that maybe specifically like the idea that god is love and that um actions that people that profess to be followers of god um that follow him trying to exemplify that love don't actually exemplify that love. I think one of the first things we have to do is I think it's important for 
and, and, and I only, I speak for Christianity because, well, I don't speak for Christianity. I speak from the perspective of Christianity sure, <laughs> because that's mine and that's the tradition that I come from. But I think at some level, this goes for any, any organized religion, any perspective or culture that we're a part of. I think the only way that we can move towards um, healing and health and honesty is to reckon with our history. So as, as you know, mm. we talked earlier, as Canada, we have to reckon with the history of how we have treated, you know, indigenous communities and, and the damage that we have caused to them. I think as Christianity, we have to reckon with the pain that our religion has inflicted on many people throughout history and the world. And that doesn't mean that everything within Canada is bad and needs to be burned to the ground. And that doesn't mean that everything within Christianity is bad and organized religion is evil. It just means that we're never going to properly um, understand, reckon, atone, and heal from those wounds until we take the time to name them and to understand where they came from so that we can move differently in the future. So I think it's, I think it's very important. And, and, and this is one example of it in the LGBTQ community. Totally, but there are many yeah. examples of the way that Christianity has uh, inflicted harm on people. And I, 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 I want to say that's okay, not in the sense of, okay, it's, it's okay to do that. It's okay to name that. Um, that's not a reflection of God necessarily. That's a reflection of all the ways that human beings continue to misinterpret God and misappropriate God and weaponize God against each other. And yet, as a Christian, I believe God still continues um, to call us and draw us and move us forward in new and healthy ways. And that the more we see God, the more we actually go back to the teachings of Jesus, the more we actually begin to follow the path of Christ in the world, the more we actually can be reconciled both to our past, also to the God who is drawing us forward, and then hopefully be reconciled to each other. Now that means making amends. That means turning, you know, in, in classical Christian language, we would call that repenting, but it means turning away from the harm that we've caused and trying to repair those things as best we can. So there's responsibility on us for all of those things. But I actually believe that at its best, you know, Christianity can call us out of the hurt that we've caused. It can call us to repent and turn around, and it can call us to begin to heal those wounds, um, you know, in healthy ways. And that takes a long time. And sometimes we have to earn the right, you know, to be back in those relationships with people. But I actually believe that we can earn that right if we really do demonstrate that we are following the way of Christ and we are following the sort of path of love in the world. Because that's ultimately what, what the scriptures tell us God is. God is love. Yeah. You know, we, we misinterpret that all times and that's fine. But, you know, slowly as we keep getting drawn back to that, for me, as I go back to the teachings of Christ at the center of what it means to be Christian, you know, I, I find myself convicted about the ways that I have to interact with the people around me and the ways that I have to listen to their stories again and the ways that I have to, you know, be willing to be influenced and changed by them. Yeah. Well, it, it's weird too. Like I'm, I'm rolling over in my mind now, this phrase, um, you can't understand or you can't appreciate where you are until you understand where you've been. Mm. And I think too that that kind of goes in with what we're experiencing with COVID and mm. all that too. That there's there's a lot that's happened, and 
it's that old adage of those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And we saw all this with the Spanish flu at the beginning of the, uh, of the 20th century with the, with that virus totally taking over the world. And there were people wearing masks and there were anti-maskers at that time too. And <laughs> all of it, like it's, it's just the same thing about a hundred years later. Right. But we didn't learn from it a hundred years ago. And so we're repeating it now. <laughs> and I think too, like, you have to know where you've come from to understand where you are. And, you know, for my family, for my family, like being from, being from the Netherlands and from your daughter's family being natively Canadian and from us as, as Caucasian people being from not this land, right? There's, there's so much that we don't understand about our own history. And so there's a lot of twisting and, misunderstanding of not only ourselves but of our relationships with others that i think stems from us not knowing enough about our own past and our own history yeah and i like that and as well said and even with COVID as an example i mean i think it will take time in the future to look back and gather the lessons i think there's lots of things that we didn't do well in this year of pandemic totally. yeah and that's okay i mean it, you know hindsight is always 2020 but going into the future, I think that's where we need to gather up all the lessons and we need to sort of do an investigation. And no, I don't mean that in the sense of like looking for who was the bad guy, but just right, yeah. <laughs> an inquiry to figure out, okay, well, how did we go wrong and what can we learn? Because, you know, it seems like epidemiologists are telling us that we're going to face this again in 10 or 20 years. So how do we become more prepared for that? And I think that's the same with all of our history. How do we learn the lessons so that we don't make the same mistakes again? And we can't just perpetuate all the things that were in the past because they're in the past. There's totally. lessons to learn from the past, but things that, that were a hundred years ago were not always good or true. And we learn more as we move forward. So we have to understand the past. We have to understand the harm we've caused. We have to understand where things went wrong so that we can say, okay, well, what's our lesson? Where do we learn from? How do we change this the next time we face into these things? And that goes for COVID. That goes for our, our relationships with indigenous communities. That goes for our relationship with LGBTQ. That comes with all the next thing that will be on the horizon five years down the road that we don't even see coming now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, even if you look at the history that's presented in the Bible, I think the main thing with the Israelites was this representation of all of humanity in that our fatal flaw is our tendency to forget. Hmm. Like they forgot all the blessings that came. They forgot all about when, you know, when God called them out of Egypt and all the things that he did to bring them to their promised land. And they forgot all the things that he did. And then they were conquered and then they repented and then they were conquered and then they repented. And it kept happening and happening and happening over hundreds of years until eventually they went into exile. And I think that's just so representative of our human nature to forget and to yeah. not learn, really. You see the writer of Judges doing that same thing where the writer keeps saying, you know, things were good and they honored the Lord and then they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and then they're conquered yeah. by another nation and then they call out in repentance. And yeah, like, exactly. Clearly, I mean, the, those stories are stylized in a way to make the exact point that you're saying, you know, is that, that when we don't learn the lessons, you know, we, we repeat the mistakes. Yeah, exactly.
I think this whole thought also flows into my next question and idea, and we can maybe riff on this for as long as you'd like, but <laughs> it's it's this idea that throughout church history and even into this last week with reports about um, you know ministry leaders or pastors and prominent apologists in the faith coming to the surface, there's been this abuse of people and this abuse of power by leaders in the church, I think for almost as long as the church has been a thing. Um, and I mean, you yourself are the pastor and leader of a church. And um, so maybe from your perspective and with all of that in mind, what role do you think that the church plays in our world? Okay. So, I mean, there's a couple questions there. Um, so I think the the issue right now is um, that we're seeing yeah a lot of high profile Christian leaders being um, outed for you know incredible amounts of abuse and damage that they've they've caused, and, and we've talked about that you know in, in a number of historical situations, but now we're seeing it you know in sort of high profile individuals. Um, when you talk about the church in this, I think that gets complicated because. Uh, there's, there's the the church is so many different organizations and structures right now. Definitely, um, yeah. So you know, there's the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which has its own sins to atone for, and then there's sort of the Protestant groupings of churches that have their own, you know, literally hundreds and thousands of different institutional structures. I think part of what we're seeing, you know, primarily within evangelicalism right now, is not so much an organized um, institution that has failed as much as a cultural emphasis that has found its way into a multiplicity of different organizations all over the place. And now that's bearing rotten fruit. And I think what it, this is overly simplistic, but I think in some ways, what has happened is we've seen a melding of religious um, systems and institutions with the worst of our celebrity capitalist culture. And what that's meant is um, usually men that are, you know, incredibly gifted or talented have been raised up into sort of a celebrity status that has generated a lot of money that goes along with it. And then institutions have developed around those personalities in order to maintain the money and the celebrity that creates the jobs and provides the organization with the funding that it needs. When that's the institutional structure and it's built on personality, it's built on fame, and it's built on money, what happens is when there is even small abuses or when there is you know, uh, an allegation, a woman comes forward and says, this is what's happening. All of the pressure within the institution is unconsciously set against that woman and backing up, protecting and maintaining the status quo. Right. Because yeah. the idea that that man may have made a mistake is not just about threatening that man's celebrity. It's about threatening all of the financial apparatus that is maintained and supported by that man's celebrity. Yeah. And I think all, that's all what the we're really seeing. All What's the that? Underpinning, 
it's like all the underpinnings holding him up as a person. Is exactly. The main, and so is the main like peak of this whole structure. Yeah. And so now that allegation becomes a threat to all of that. And so I don't, I think initially it's not even a sort of um, a conscious choice. It's that the institution is built to push those allegations away and to protect the person at the center um, because everything depends on that. And fundamentally that's, that's just a, a structure that is ripe for abuse. It's going to feed into the ego of that person, which is never going to be good for that person, that man. And it's going to minimize, you know, the voice of, of women or, you know, whoever it is that speaks up. And so and I think whoever's that's being abused. Of exactly. Course, too. Yeah. And I think that's what we, we really need to take away from this moment is it's not just you know, a Ravi Zacharias who's in the news right now. It's not just his personal failing that we're seeing. It's a failing of the system that holds one man up as the personality around which all of our finances and jobs are built on. Because it doesn't matter who that person is. That person is, is going to make a mistake. And very early on, they should be called on that. And they should be given a chance to make amends and, and to turn things around and move in a different direction. But when the institution is set up to protect that person and insulate that person, they're going to keep making mistakes. They're going to be more emboldened in them. And we're going to end up with the kinds of horrific abuses that we saw, um, you know, that, that Ravi Zacharias, you know, perpetrated on women. And yeah. so well, and I think there's a real this, problem. This case, this case with Ravi Zacharias, too, it really parallels what happened with Jean Vanier as well. And that, and that yeah, there I mean, was a Vanier lot of was, different abuse, but right. but only after both of their deaths did this stuff even kind of come into the light? Yeah. I mean, I think the difference, um, and I'm not, um, and I'm certainly not excusing the cases of Vanier. The oh, difference with Vanier was um, those, the allegations didn't come forward until after his death. Um, what we saw with the Ravi Zacharias case is the allegations had been there for decades and had been ignored. Um, oh, you know, right. Yeah. With Vanier and Larsh, I actually think Larsh did a, a you know, as far as an organization could do, they did a good job of when the allegation came forward, they investigated, they acknowledged the situation, um, they found the truth, and they owned up to it. What we saw with uh, Arzim was a, a, a decades-long pattern of refusing to investigate allegations and to mm. bury them. And I think that is what we really need to take away from this, is not the failings of men. You know, I, I see that a lot. Oh, we're all sinners. It was sure. Um, but most of us don't have institutions behind us that enable our sin, you know, and that's what we really need to take away from this. This is not a personal, moral, individual failing. This is a failing of the institutions that allow this type of thing to happen. And as a pastor uh, who is in charge um, of an organization, what I look to is, is our systems and structures to say, does this set us up for the same kind of failure? Even if I don't think I'm going to make those same mistakes. Right. And so yeah. one of that is making sure that we have, you know, women who are in our leadership, that our leadership is not male centric or male dominated or dominated by one voice, that we have a board that actually has um, authority and power and teeth to be able to investigate these types of things, that we have a policy that says, yes, we are going to listen um, to allegations, whether it comes from a woman or anybody in our community as well, um, and that we are, uh, you know, we we don't we have a decision making process that involves more than one voice, who is unaccountable to a larger community. 
local churches, I think, you know, have the opportunity to do things differently. And most of them do because most local churches aren't sort of based on the kind of celebrity that goes along with, you know, a Ravi Zacharias or something like sure, that. Of course, but it yeah. doesn't mean that we don't need to be diligent in terms of our institutions and our structures. Because most of these large-scale mistakes, again, they're not individual failings. They're structural failings. And I think that's the lesson that we need to take away from this. And, and we need to investigate in all of our organizations. And I think, too, like there's a certain amount of accountability that just has to be in place. And you know, with, with someone like Ravi Zacharias, there were individual choices that he personally made, but those choices were not um preventable in a way like yep. they they were choices that he personally made but the system around him didn't help him from keeping away from those choices you know what i yeah, mean yeah and, like and not only that um the 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 problem is when you when the institution is set up to insulate that person right um, that you not only are you you can't stop someone from making a mistake. An individual is going to make a mistake. They're going to do what they want to do. And if they hurt someone, they're going to hurt someone. I understand that. But what the institution sure. is set up to isolate that person, what you do is you enable that person to perpetrate a kind of harm on more people than they ever could as an individual. So yes, of course, he is responsible for his individual choices. But if he was an individual, he would not have been able to perpetrate that amount of harm on that many women. Right. It's only because yeah. of the organization that isolates him, that protects him, that insulates him from allegations that he was able to, to do as much damage as he was. And that's where we really need to take stock and we need to look at these things. Of course, we can't stop individuals from making bad choices all the time. But... That certainly doesn't mean we need to enable them or give them a platform to perpetrate the kinds of harm that we're seeing, you know, around us. And, and it's tricky because, you know, of course, people are going to continue to make mistakes. Um, of course, I'm going to make mistakes. Sure. But I want to make sure that the, the organization and the institution I've set up around me is there to, um, well, frankly, to be aware of what I'm doing, to fire me if they need to, um, to strip me from, you know, any type of authority um, if I've made those types of mistakes. I don't want them to insulate me. And again, that's way easier on the on the smaller church level, for sure, like where you can maybe have more say in who's on a board or who is in leadership or who is preaching from the stage. And I definitely think that, you know, going back to this question of what role does the church even play i think that's a really important thing is acknowledging the power of smaller churches and individual communities where we can um, bolster the voices of historically marginalized people and lgbtq people and women of course like that's half of humanity right if right. if if the church silences half of humanity what what hope does the church have yeah, and so I mean, at Commons, um, you know, we have a we have a board, but we also have a nomination committee, and, and part of their task is to ensure that 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 leadership that gives governance and oversight to the church is representative of the diverse community that is here within our community. Right. So it's it's important 
to ensure that our board is not a bunch of white men who are going to see things the way that I see the world. It doesn't mean that the perspective of a white man isn't important. I am a well, white man. I mean, I, well, I think I, I mean, have something we're, valuable we're both, to offer. Yeah, we're, we're both white men. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> but, if, but if all of the people giving oversight to me are naturally predisposed to see the world the way that I see it, we are going to open ourselves to all kinds of abuses that I'm, I'm not even going to be aware of in the moment. And so ensuring that our board has, you know, a gender balance on it, ensuring that our board has ethnic diversity on it, ensuring that our board has different representation from different communities is a, is a vitally important piece, not just, and I think this is important, not just to looking like, you know, we're a hip church that's diverse and all of that nonsense. It's actually vitally important to ensuring that we have the systems and structures that are going to keep us heading down the right path in the future. Because this is the reality that I think we're becoming more and more aware of right now. But a black woman sees the world differently than I see it because her experiences are different than mine. And a gay man sees the world differently than, than I do because his experience is different than mine. And when we allow ourselves to lead in team and in community, and we value all of those different voices, we're going to see the signs of failure or the signs of changes that we need to make much earlier than we would otherwise. And so some of these sort of diversity initiatives, I think there's some places that are doing it, you know, uh, maybe not fully understanding it and they're doing it because it's, you know, that's what you're supposed to do and it's hip and it's cool to do that now. But I think if we really understand the import of these things, we understand how much more robust, how much more um, safe they're going to make us when we really pursue these initiatives. Definitely. And I think, too, the more diversity and the more colors we have represented of the human spectrum in places of leadership, I think the better off we are for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because none of us can fully understand, um, certainly God, but none of us fully understand any experience that we're having. You know, we're always filtering that through our experience of the world. Like that, that's what we do as human beings. That's how our brains are set up. Like absolutely, we, we just don't have the capacity to see things from every perspective. So we stereotype and we reduce things down and we filter things through our own experience. Like that's a that's an adaptive um, skill that evolution yeah. has given us all as human beings. The problem is it tends to lead us to discount certain information that doesn't fit within our predefined scope of of what we believe about the world and when we actually begin to listen to each other we, we sort of broaden that perspective and we see things more true because we see things from from outside the one that we've been conditioned to listen to and hear Um, I guess one final, one final question here for you. I know, yeah, we're no running worries. a bit over, but um, and and I definitely want to respect your time. One final thought is, um, this is a question that I've been asking everybody at the end of the show: is uh, what's one thing that you wish people knew about being a pastor? Um, maybe in your case, being an adoptive parent. Um, maybe being from Ontario. I don't know. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, what what would what is one thing that you wish people knew 
about being a pastor or an adoptive parent or being someone in your unique position of leadership? Okay, so here's the first one. Being from Ontario, I wish everybody knew Ontario are not the bad guys. Guys, we're, we're doing our best. I know we're just trying. We're trying to catch up to you and Alberta here. And I've lived here for 15 years, so I, I love Alberta. And this is, this is home now. But yeah, you're, you're locked in now. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, I think, um, man, what's one thing I wish that people knew as a pastor? Um, I wish that, here, here's, here's, what I, here, here's what I'll say. Everybody knows this, but I wish, I wish, here's what I would say. I wish pastors were more honest about this. Um, cause I think everybody really does know this deep down. I don't think, uh, I don't think we talk about it enough and I don't think the pastors acknowledge it enough. The pastors are really not all that different from other people. Um, of course they're not in the broad strokes, but at the same time, I think pastors have the same questions about how to read the Bible in honest ways. I think pastors have the same questions about, you know, what does it mean to believe in the idea of a God in a modern world? I think pastors have the same doubts. I think pastors have the same struggles. I think pastors wake up some mornings where they believe in God and some mornings where they don't. And all of the things that all of us normally experience all the time, um, pastors have just committed to sort of moving through that in ways that keep them oriented toward God. But it doesn't mean pastors don't have doubts. It doesn't mean pastors don't second guess their faith or their perspective or the way that they're viewing the world. And I think if people sort of had a bit more of that perspective um, and pastors were more honest about that perspective with people, I think we could have all kinds of different conversations that were more open and more sacred. And maybe in the midst of that, people might actually come to encounter God in new ways if pastors would just admit how hard it is to believe in God sometimes. That is so legit. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's beautiful. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Jeremy. I, I really appreciate uh, you giving up some of your time. And I'm, I'm grateful for the example that you have set as a pastor of this church and of this community and um, I know we've had a few talks in the past about this kind of stuff too. And um, I just want to thank you for um, for sharing your time and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom, you know, with, with my audience too. So no worries. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate the thoughtful questions as well. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening this week. If you liked this episode, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash unexpected experts. This show is a totally solo project and it takes a lot of time and energy to schedule interviews, edit, promote, and release content consistently. So if you want to support the content that you consume, consider becoming a patron and supporting me for as little as three bucks a month. I'm also over on Instagram at unexpected experts. I'm over there making posts about the episodes that come out every three weeks, as well as Insta stories a little more regularly. So it's a great way to stay connected to the show, even if there aren't episodes coming out every single week. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we'll see you next time on the Unexpected Experts podcast. Unexpected Experts.